Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that uh, we're able to dive in and just get good, solid doctrine from Paul. As Paul, by the Holy Spirit, teaches the Romans, we get to the benefit of that. Um, this is your word, as Aaron uh, prayed earlier. Um, this is for us. And so Lord, help us to receive it. Help us to learn it, to know it, um, that we might be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Judgment is how we start off. Paul left off with um, giving us a, a perfect list. You know, uh, this is the progression. Man decided not to acknowledge God, and therefore all the evidence that's around him in creation had to be ignored or else had to be uh, been given a new narrative, which is what's happened. Um, what we're seeing out there isn't God's hand, the world says. It's just chance. It's just uh, whoops, you know. Mistake after mistake after mistake after mutation after mutation. And here we are, a perfectly ordered conscious being that's able to look, breathe, uh, think, and have self-awareness. Wow, amazing. Um, <laughs> that's not how it is. That's just a new narrative is all that is. It's a false narrative. Um, I think today we call it fake news. Uh, the real truth is that God is our creator. And so Paul says, God's watching you all decide that it's not him, and he gave them over to a debased mind. He let them have their way. Fine, it's not me. It is you. It's the goo. You did come from apes. You did come out of the trees. Okay, now what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Follow it to its logical conclusion. So God gave it to them. Have at it. And all of a sudden you realize, I have no purpose. I have no I have no goal. There is no aim. There is no reason for me to exist anymore. Um, I just was an accident, and I'll go into blackness like I came from blackness. And so what's the point? And so they begin to come up with things that uh, they can worship because they still have that God-shaped void that they want to worship. So they start worshiping the things, the birds, the four-footed animals, the creeping things, whatever it is that tickles their fancy. They begin to worship that. And in the process of doing that, they begin to act like those brute beasts that they worship. They begin to do things that are unnatural, that are not um, according to God's order, and it ruins them. And the end of it was a full list of all the sins that uh, are ruining this world and are ruining ourselves and ruining each other. So Paul begins chapter 2 with this. Therefore, since you know these things, since you're believers, Romans, because he's only writing to Roman believers, right? You're inexcusable, oh man. Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Oh, the world loves this section of Scripture. If there's a section of Scripture that the world knows, this is it. You know, this is the one. Um, <laughs> when you begin to point out faults, when you begin to point out sins, I say, don't judge me. You know, the Bible says thou shalt not judge and, and on and on. And they don't understand. And, and honestly, I, I think 80% of Christians don't understand either. And so today we're going to learn it. We're going to get it down. Because the man who just said, Paul, writing to the Romans, telling them not to judge, just judged them according to that logic of the world. 
In other words, you can't point out my faults. You can't say I'm doing anything wrong because you do wrong things too. Therefore, nobody can point the finger at anybody. And they think that's what this section of scripture means when actually Paul just did that exact thing. That's not what he's talking about. I'll give you an example of what he is talking about. In Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 38. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, how do you forgive somebody that you haven't found fault in? He just said, you've got to forgive people. For what? You've got to forgive people for sins. You've got to forgive people for the wrong that they've done to you. It's, it's obvious that there's things that are wrong. You, you see somebody doing something illegal on a subway, we've used that many times now, or in a home with a, with a spouse, you, you don't walk in and say, well, I don't mean to judge. No, 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 no. I'm absolutely going to find the fault. I'm actually going to do something and deal with the fault. We're going to do something about that. We talked about that. How do you forgive somebody if they, you can't judge them? So that's not what he's talking about. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 tells us that we are to judge. That as Christians, we're the only ones that know how to judge. Here's what he says. Same writer, Paul But the natural man, that's an unbeliever, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that we may instruct him? But we have, as Christians, the mind of Christ. We're the only ones that are seeing the world correctly. The world hates it when people say that out loud. And many churches won't say that out loud. But the only people on this earth that can truly see and judge the things happening in the Ukraine, in Washington, D.C., around us locally, are the Christians. We're the only ones with a biblical worldview. We're the only ones who have truth that we can hold up against what we're seeing and say, that doesn't line up, that doesn't line up. And some in the world say, you're judging me. No, Jesus called us to this. He actually said this. You've got to judge. You've got to know the difference and discern what's right, what's wrong. We do that every single day. Now, the judgment he's talking about is this. This is what you're not supposed to do. I don't get to sentence you. I have no authority to do that. I can't say you're doing something wrong, therefore you're going to hell. And you're not going to get this, that, or the other thing. That's not my place. That's God's place. He's the one that stands in judgment. The judge is the judge. He's the one with the black robe. He's got the gavel. He's the one that has the book and the sentencing and all the authority. I don't have that authority. But I can judge with a conclusion of what I see based off of God's word. That's what he's calling us to. Paul here is saying this, if you are practicing these same things, that's how he left off verse or chapter one, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, you're inexcusable. 
<clears throat> if you're looking at them and saying, that's ah, sin over there, and then you go do that sin, you're, un- you're unexcused. You're held to a stricter judgment. These Bible studies are actually bad news for you. Every time you sit under the teaching of God's word, every time you open up the Bible and read something, you're accountable to it. God says, oh, they learned it. So we run while you can, because once you learn this, you're accountable. You're responsible for what you know. You don't get to plead ignorance. If you know these things are wrong, you're able to point out these things. You begin to practice these things yourself. You're inexcusable, oh man. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to practice what God practices. He sees all these things that are going on in the world. He knows. And yet he doesn't step in and judge yet. We're in an age of grace right now. And what that means is uh, we're not at the great white throne judgment, which we're learning about on Thursday night in the book of Revelation. We're not there yet. Here's the position that we're in right now. We're in a place where God is giving every man an opportunity, every woman an opportunity to repent from their sins and to turn towards him, to accept the forgiveness from Jesus Christ and to get to go to heaven. And that's what he's going to talk about here in this next section. That's the age we live in. When Jesus shows up his second time, that age is over with. It's done. Judgment begins. Chapters 6 through 19 in the book of Revelation is God's wrath being poured out in a Christ-rejecting world. It is a judgment of God beginning. It's a slow progression, hoping that people still repent while they're still alive. But eventually, it ends up in 19 and 20, where he shows up. White horses were with him, uh, sword out of his mouth, which is his word, and he judges Then we have the great white throne judgment, and he judges everybody. And that's it. That's the end of it. But for now, we're in an age of grace. So since we're in this age of grace, Paul is saying, Romans, it's not not okay to just know what's wrong. You need to stop doing what's wrong. It's a hard thing to teach. Sometimes we just need to hear it, though. I know we all struggle, and I understand there are some things that you just can't seem to shake in your life, it seems like. Some sins went easy. Some sins just seemed to linger on. And we somehow or another in our minds, we make a distinction between these two things. Says, well, those are the ones, I don't know, that God just took away. And these are the ones that God didn't take away. That's really not what Scripture teaches. The ones over in this right hand over here that don't seem to leave my life are the ones I've decided not to stop doing. There is no other way to put it. The sins in my life over on this right hand are the ones I've decided not to stop doing. I have complete power to stop sinning. I choose not to. That's a hard pill to swallow. I understand that. It's a hard one. Because it's personal responsibility. It means that I can't just pray it away. Oh, God, take this away from me. And then you wait and you wait. Well, God never took it away. As if that's our excuse and that we can blame him for them for it. You can't. God sets us free. When I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I'm set free from all of my sins. Not from some, from all of them. Every single one of them, the the chains have fallen off. If I'm still lingering in the cell and the door is wide open, that's my fault. I can walk out of that prison anytime I want, but I stand there for some reason. I sleep there. I'm comfortable there. I'm used to it. I kind of like it. There's no other way to put it. There we sit. Paul says, I don't want you to do that anymore. Here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to practice these things. In verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent hearts, or impenitent hearts, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and to the Greek, for there is no Partiality with God. Um, that forbearance is a word that I looked up because it's a word we don't use very often, but it's obviously it's a perfect word. Can you put that picture up or is it hard? Oh, there it is. Great. Uh, self-control, restraint, and tolerance. Not like it's okay, tolerance, but like I can deal with it. Like the pain. I can deal with the pain. That kind of tolerance. Look at that law. The action of refraining from exercising a legal right especially enforcing the payment of a debt. That's what God is showing to us right now. That's what the age of grace means. He is actively waiting, refraining from exercising a legal right that he has to enforce the payment of a debt. You owe me your life because of your sin. I am not taking that from you yet because I'm hoping that you'll repent from your sins. But make no mistake about it. It's just forbearance. Judgment comes. It's a fact. Forbearance is just to put it off, but it is coming. And to think that it's not is to fool yourself. And that's why he says this in this section of Scripture. I want you to practice forgiveness. I want you to do those things because don't you understand the goodness that you're receiving from God, the forbearance, the long-suffering? He's putting up with a lot. We don't think of it that way, that God's just putting up with us. I think I've been putting up with you. I don't think I'm putting up with me. I'm a great guy. The problem is we all think that about ourselves. We're great people. He's putting up with them. Boy, that's Sam, Thrower, gee whiz, you know. <laughs> yeah. There's forbearance, and I'm thankful for it. And I probably don't spend enough time thinking about that. You know, the goodness of God. He's rich in it. The forbearance of God, he's rich in it. The long-suffering of God, he's rich in it. Because this is what leads people to repentance, is the fact that he's willing to forbear. That's the gospel. That's the most important part of the gospel. I understand we need to point out sin and that you need to repent and turn from your sin. What's important, though, to follow up with immediately after recognizing what separated me from God, my choices, my sin, is that God has forbearance for us right now. I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do or what I'm going to do, what the law requires me to do. I'm not going to do that yet. I'm waiting. I'm giving you time. I'm going to suffer with you a long time. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to wait for you. But there comes a time when that waiting stops. We use that verse far too often. I don't know if I wrote it down here. I think, oh, I did. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 23. It's a wonderful verse, and I wholeheartedly embrace it, okay? 
we misuse it or misunderstand it and not in light of other scriptures. Here's what it says. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we take from that, we kind of condense it and say his mercies are new every morning. And I think we misunderstand that to think that I can do whatever I want as long as I want. He's just going to give me mercy every morning. It's like I've started with a fresh, clean slate and all the things I've ever done, he's going to give me mercy for. And tomorrow, Monday, I get a new slate of mercies. And Tuesday, a new slate of mercies. That's not what it means. That would be interesting. I don't know if that'd be good or not because it gives permission to sin. It gives permission to go ahead. As, you know, if you live to be tomorrow, then you get new mercies. You couldn't exhaust them. This is Lamentations. It comes from that book. That's an Old Testament book, and it's describing to us his thoughts and heart towards those who love him. Now, for unbelievers, there is an end to this. He will not put up with us forever. Scriptures tell us that. I will not put up with this forever. I'm putting up with it for now. I'm forbearing. Please never forget that word. I am forbearing. The law has not been nullified. It's been fulfilled through my son, Jesus Christ. But without Jesus Christ, it has not been fulfilled for you. You are responsible for your sins. It was a little fire and brimstone for a Wednesday night, I know. But Paul wrote it. It's Romans 2. And it helps us. Sometimes we need a slap in the face spiritually. Stop it. Knock it off. Quit. Maybe you started when you first got saved really fighting for righteousness, really fighting for holiness. Maybe you really pushed hard in your life. And you lost so many times in all those battles that you stopped fighting and that you've given in. I don't know what to do anymore. I just, I guess, I just accepted whatever. Whatever excuse is, and we stop. I'm telling you, pick up that fight again. Pick it up again. Every single day. And I know it's tiring and it gets wearying, but Here's what he says right here in this section. Let's not forget this. Eternal life, verse 7, to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. doesn't necessarily mean that we make it. And I don't want to diminish this or water it down, but he does say we're going to, those who, can, who, who patiently continue, they seek it. Patiently continue. It's worthy. It's a worthy fight. Um, God honors that fight. He recognizes the battle. He, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, he says in Hebrews. It's a wonderful section of scripture. Um, and although he was tempted in all things but without sin, he realizes what it's like to be tempted. He knows the struggle we go to and that we do fail and he didn't. And so he does sympathize with us, but we're called to this. We're called to this Patient continuance in doing good. Seek for glory, honor, immortality. Don't be self-seeking. Seek God's glory in your life. I think we're getting... Um, I, I, I need to stop saying that. It's always been this way. He's writing to the Romans in the first century church. We're not worse off as a church worldwide as they were worse off as a church worldwide. You should read the letter to the Corinthians. You're like, oh my goodness, I can't imagine that was going on in their church. 
you kind of figured they were super holy back then, and somewhere along the line, we got all watered down and yucky along the way, and we've got some lame copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of Christianity 2,000 years later. That's kind of how we view it. No, no, no. We're just people. It's the same people in Romans or the same people sitting in this room and all over the world. It's just us. It's people. The same struggles you have are the same struggles they have. The same sins they had, some of them anyway, you may identify with and say, I struggle with that too kind of thing. It's the same thing. It, it's just God's word is perfect and forever because people are the same forever. We're imperfect and forever. You know, I could have very well been sitting in this congregation hearing this right here, and it, it would be completely applicable then as it is now. So we just have to make sure that we're continuing the fight, that we're continuing to talk about these things, you know, that these are sins and they're not okay, that we should never get so comfortable with them that the church itself, at least not that there's a giant organization like a secret church leadership or whatever, the church is the people, but as a group, we don't all decide that, well, we're just not going to talk about that anymore. Nobody can seem to get a handle on it in their lives, so we're just going to move it from the sin column to the righteous column. Can't do that. We still have to leave the columns where God has them in his word. And on some days we're rejoicing because we're doing the right thing, and then we other times we read the word of God, and we're like, I'm over here, I'm not doing so great. We need both of those things. And still just need to talk about the truth like it's the truth. It's not subjective. So Paul is telling them, look, you're guilty of sins. You're working on them. You're getting better. Quit pointing them out all the time because you're still doing the same things. You know, in fact, the world who looks at me and says, stop judging me just did by saying that. You know what I mean? You understand that? Don't judge me. Are you saying that I'm judgmental? Don't judge me for being judgmental. Don't judge me. You know, (laughs) where does that end? It's faulty logic. No. Verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in between themselves, their thoughts excusing, or accusing, excuse me, or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. It is, it's exactly what he says. For me to elaborate on it is probably unnecessary, um, but I, I am going to because, I mean, that's what I do. I read the Word of God. I give a sense of the meaning. I'll give you an example of this. When I was at the pastor's conference in California, I think I told this story before, but it's, it's such a good example. I was at a, a burger joint right off the pier and just waiting you know, the conference hadn't started yet, and I, had, I couldn't check into my hotel yet because my plane landed too soon, so I went to the ocean just to get, you know, when you go to California, you got to go see the ocean, just do. So I did, and I sat there, and I'm eating my burger and fries, or I'm waiting for him, I think, and I see the guy come out with his apron from the, uh, the burger place, and he walks around over here to the bike rental place, and there she is, 
who's, and neither one of these people know the Lord. I don't need to describe them, but they, neither of them knew the Lord. Okay. But I watched this exchange between these two unbelievers using all the language that an unbeliever uses and all the, but despite all that, if you can get, and as a Marine, you know, I, I don't have virgin ears anymore. So none of this stuff surprises me. So I'm able to sit there and listen to this conversation for what it was. It doesn't offend me that the F word or the S word, any of these words were used. I'm just watching these two exchange because that's the, it's just adjectives. It's just words are using. This beautiful exchange between these two souls, right? But neither of them are believers. But they knew what to do. They knew the right things to say to one another. They knew that's exactly what he's talking about here. Okay? He was kind. Hey, Cheryl, whatever her name was. I don't remember her name. You want something to eat? Yeah, I've been thinking about what I'm supposed to eat. Bob, what do you got? I'll make whatever you want, Cheryl. I don't know what I want. You got anything that doesn't have any meat in it? He goes, no meat. I suppose I can find something. I think I'll do this. You got any of those uh, that whatever, near meat? What is it called? Not, not near meat. Soy meat, something like that or something. You got anything? Else? He goes, yeah, I got something back there. Like, oh, give me one of those. He goes over there Makes it, walks it over to her. She, ah, Bob, thanks a lot. I really appreciate that. Goes, no, no problem, Cheryl. Have a great day. Enjoy the sunshine. Oh, I don't know. Not really. Just on and on. And they separate. They went to their own ways. I'm like, that was about the neatest exchange I've seen from two human beings, and neither of them knew Jesus. That was the neatest exchange I had seen between two human beings, and neither of them had known Jesus. It was very convicting for me right there. Very convicting. Because these unbelievers knew what to do. They knew how to talk to each other. They knew how to be gracious with one another. He could have gone off on her. Oh, you're one of them people. One of them PETA people. He didn't. Oh, that's your thing? Yeah, I can find something for you. Guarantee he cooked it on the same grill he cooked every other burger out there. So she was getting the benefit of other meat eaters, you know, on her little soy burger. But that's a little other thing. What he's saying here is, you Jews have the law. You're obligated because you hear it every Saturday. You've learned it. You know what you're supposed to do. You believing Gentiles who don't know the law, they've never studied it before, automatically do the things that your conscience is telling you to do. You're accountable for those things. You haven't been taught the law, but the very fact that you know it's the right thing to do and that there is a wrong thing to do, although you've never been taught from God's word what that is, it's now a law to you because you know the difference. Our conscience is very, very important. I'm all for studying the law to know the Ten Commandments and know these things. I think that's important. I said, but I know there are certain circumstances where the law doesn't apply, but I know that that's the wrong thing to do. Although I could not give you a scripture that tells me it's the wrong thing to do, I just know I can't do that. And that is what needs to guide us. Not our heart, but that conscience. As we're filled with the Holy Spirit as believers, I know. And what he's saying here also is, and what you don't know, that's up to God what he wants to do with that. If you do things that you don't know, that you haven't been taught. That's why these Bible studies get you in trouble. If you do something and you didn't know it was wrong in God's word, you weren't feeling convicted about it at all, and you just went ahead and did it. And I had years of that as a believer. I didn't just, you know, get the dry race and erase all my sins. I was still sinning. 
I didn't have any conviction for it. And if I, how would I be judged then for those things? So let me read it again, having that understanding. For as many as have sinned without the law, I didn't have to tell you not to murder somebody. You should know that taking someone's life is wrong. I didn't have to read the Ten Commandments to learn that. That's just wrong. Everybody knows it's wrong. It was wrong before the Ten Commandments were written, before the law. You're also going to perish without the law. Still responsible. And as many as have sinned in the law, well, they'll be judged by the law. Because you need to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer only. That's a long parenthetical statement there. You could remove it and move right to verse 16 if you wanted to. Um, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, we're all going to be held accountable. Let me run through some cross-references for you. In Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 48, I don't know that we fully understand this section of Scripture, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. It it says what it says. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. It's depending on what you know. So are you saying that hell has a a light beating area and a heavy beating area? No, I'm not. I don't understand it either exactly, except that God judges according to the knowledge of the person. That's what he says. James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. There is accountability for what you know to do. When I know that that's wrong and I do that anyway, it's worse. They call that trespassing. We have sins, we have transgressions, we have trespassing, all of which have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not that he's paid for some and not for others. They all have been as believers. But a trespass is something where I see the sign, I know it's not my place, and yet there I find myself standing, and it's not my place to be there. That's a trespass. I know I'm not supposed to go there, but here I am. Anyway, you've trespassed. That's why we have to put signs up, put purple paint on all your trees or on your property. As soon as you see that purple paint, you know. So now if you step across that purple paint, you're accountable, is the idea. So Paul says to the Romans, and what he's trying to get to them um, I don't know what their original problem was, but what it, what it indicates is it just, just isn't a doctrinal statement for them to understand, but f- to stop them from doing certain things that they're doing. Some of the most, mm, I don't know if righteous is the right word. There's just a lot of people that are very good at pointing out, critics maybe, Christian critics. They're very good at pointing out and recognizing other faults in other people. Which, there is a place for that, I understand. But it's hard to receive that from somebody who's pointing that out in your life when they're doing the same, you know, and they don't see it, is what Paul's getting at. You, it isn't, you can't just stand there and say, well, that is wrong. Didn't I see you there last night? Yes. But that is, you know, there's just this... Um, 
different standard for other people than there is for ourselves. And that's what Paul's getting at here. I mean, it's the, the short version. If you're going to judge other people, judge yourself as harshly or be a forgiving person. Be a person who recognizes the fault and the problem and whatever. Pray for that person. Be forbearing with them. Long suffer if you must. Seek God's goodness and his righteousness. Be like Jesus, you know, is the idea. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors not to become one, but to serve them and to minister to them that they might stop being sinners and tax collectors, is the idea. If you work for the IRS, I'm sorry. Need to quit. No. No, because the tax collectors were corrupt at the time. We're called to that. Um, we're called to sit and eat with them. And I don't, I'm, I'm pretty sure he didn't sit at that table say, I know who you are, and I know who you are. I know where you were doing the other day, and I know what you were doing the other day. Like, man, who invited this guy? You know, kind of thing. No. He was there to forbear, to show his goodness, his long-suffering, to show that there was a way back to him. Very important. All of us need to leave here with that tonight. There's a way back to God, and the world needs to know there's a way back to God. It's easy to point out that they're separated from God. Very good at that. But to follow up with, there's a way back to him, by the way. And I've found it because I was where you are, separated from him, but I found my way back to him, and I just want to show you the path that I took. And that puts everything in better light. When I get the plank out of my own eye, it's very easy to help with other people's specs. Now, verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest in the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in dark darkness an instructor of foolish, of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and the truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So those were the Roman Jews, the guys, the Jewish people that were there. He goes, do you know that the Gentiles make fun of you because of your righteousness, but it's such self-righteousness that they can, they see it. See, every one of us has a bunch of people we're ministering to all the time. We have a sphere of influence, we call it, whether that's at work, in our family, wherever. And they're watching us. And when I don't do what everybody in the world knows a Christian is supposed to do, and boy, they know it better than we do, don't they? You're a Christian, right? That's what you're supposed to be doing. And they watch to see if you really do it. And then when you don't do it, ha-ha, you're just like me. It doesn't work. And we call that in Christendom blowing your witness. You blew your witness. The witness of a living epistle, Paul calls us living epistles, that we walk with the Lord, that they don't even have to read their Bible. They're reading you from cover to cover every single day, and you're walking your walk. And when you blow it, oh my goodness, they'll never let you forget it. There's not much you can do about that because you're a wicked sinner. And we do. We blow it every once in a while. And so you blow your witness. But boy, the world loves it. And they'll never let you live it down. You know, 
He says, don't you know when you guys do these things that you blaspheme, they can blaspheme God because of you? Don't do that. Don't give them an excuse to blaspheme God. Some scriptures to go along with this. James chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. I mean, I, when I study, I probably read through chapter 2. By the time I'm done, 10 times. I probably read through it before tonight, 10 times. I read through it probably once or twice, and then I start making my breaks where I'm going to take my chapter breaks. Then probably a third, fourth, and fifth time, I start making notes. And by the time I'm done going through it, I've gone through it probably 10 times. I'm in trouble. I know this chapter two better than anybody in this room, or I should anyway, or shouldn't be up here teaching. I'm in trouble. Got to pay attention to these things. When I teach you, I'm teaching myself. You know how many times I've been up here and I'm like, totally stunned as God brings conviction upon me right in front of everybody. I'm like, okay, that this is terrible, you know, to stand up here and be convicted by God as I'm teaching God's word to people. But that's it. It's very tough. So, so James is, James is saying is, you know what? I just better not be a teacher then, you know, it's gotta be tongue in cheek. The point is you are held guys. Uh, I love Calvary Chapel. They teach the word of God. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter. No one else is doing it. And I'm, I agree. I think it's the best way to study the Bible. Verse by verse, chapter. I, I, I'm totally on board. But the problem with being so excited about that is that I am without excuse because I have read the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I've studied it. You've studied it. We've gone through the Bible. I read through the Bible in a year. Uh-oh. <laughs> You're accountable for everything you read. Yeah, there ain't any points for that. A changed life? Yeah, but no points for making it through in a year. If there was no conviction, there's no life change. What's the point of reading through the Bible in a year? Verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, he's going to say these words over and over again. You kind of get lost. So let me stop, and then we'll read through the rest of it. If you are circumcised, which means this is the idea, God has given us the law. We are his. We've decided to be his. We got our foreskins cut off as a badge of honor. You know, I am a Christian But if I start breaking the law, I don't get to rely on my foreskin being gone. Sorry to put too fine a point on it, but I got to talk about it here. Some people rest in the fact that they've been circumcised. You're like, well, that's kind of weird. We got the same problem. I got my baptismal certificate. When I was seven years old, I was baptized. Here's my certificate. Are you a breaker of the law? All the time? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you... Well, no, but I got my baptismal certificate. It's the same thing. That doesn't save you. That was supposed to be a moment where you stepped into the water to acknowledge the fact that you've given your life over to God, and that you're going to follow him the rest of the days of your life, and then you stop following him, and you think that's going to save you? A lot of people think that. Your baptismal certificate has become an unbaptismal certificate. 
at that point. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. James tells us over and over again, I don't tell me about your faith, show me. Stop talking about way back when you were at Calvary Chapel in the tent. Big tent. Back, if you don't know the story of Calvary Chapel, back in the 70s, had a big tent, overflowing with all these people coming to know the Lord. It's wonderful. But for some people back then, that's all they can talk about is that moment back then. So what did you do in the 90s, 20 years later? Well, I kind of went back and wasn't walking with the Lord for the next 40 years, but I was at the tent. So what? It must not have took. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Paul's trying to teach them something here. This is not the badge you think that it is. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? That's huge. Do you know, Jews, that these Gentiles who are following God will judge you? Oy vey, you don't say that. You can see them ripping their clothes, you know, throwing sack, you know, ashes on their head. Not a Gentile, yeah. Paul says a Gentile is going to judge you because of your wickedness. The whole point of this is not to point out who's wicked, who's not, who's circumcised, who's not, who baptized, who's not. It's the point is who loves the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's never been about religion. It's never been about paper. It's not about getting wet. It's not about having your foreskin removed. It has everything to do with your heart, following God, giving your life up to him. There are far too many people sitting in churches all over the world resting in the fact that they've got some external religious paperwork that shows that they're getting into heaven when they're not living for him and they don't love him and they don't worship him and they don't care to. And so Paul is trying to shake that out of them here. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. You know how the Jews started? This is where we'll close. Started off with a man named Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver. That's what his name meant. Heel catcher. He was tricky. A tricky guy. He stole the birthright from his older brother, who came out just a few seconds earlier, because technically they're twins, but the other kid got out first. And he was holding on to the heel of his brother when he came out. And they said, oh, look at that Jacob. He's a usurper. He's trying to take it. He's trying to do that. So he called Jacob his whole life, you know. Hey, usurper. (laughs) How would you like to be called that? Hey, tricky. And when God got a hold of his heart, finally, he changed his name from tricky Jake to Israel, which means governed by God. Same man, different name. When God gets a hold of our heart and he changes our name to being governed by God, not governed by Tricky Jake. Tricky Jake doesn't govern Tricky Jake anymore. God governs Tricky Jake. And so I'm going to change your name to Israel. That's what happens, has to happen to every single human being that walks the face of the earth. They have to move from being who they are, governing their own lives, to being born again in the spirit. 
and letting God be on the throne of their heart. It's no longer me on the throne. It's no longer me calling the shots. It's me giving over my whole life to you, and I follow you all the days of my life. That's what it means. It doesn't matter whether I got wet, got a foreskin, or whatever is going on. Is my heart his? It's an inward work of the heart, Paul says. It's something that happens in the spirit that has to take place. We're running long, but we have to. Isaiah 1. It's a long cross-reference. You can turn there if you want. I won't read it all. I will start in verse... I'll start in verse 11. I was going to read all the way through. Probably could have in that amount of time that I waited. But Verse 11, chapter 1 of, of, of Isaiah. It's a prophet to the nation of Israel. God's upset with them. Then the verse, ten, first 10 verses, he explains a lot. But here's what he says, essentially. Because they don't believe in God anymore. They don't worship him. But they do go through the religious actions. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. So that was his idea, the sacrifices. He says, you know what? Knock it off. Quit killing these animals because of your sins. I don't want to see it anymore. What do you mean, God? When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. Those were his idea. He told them to do that. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I'll not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from, from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall not eat, or you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. They were going off and sinning and doing all these things. They said, that's all right, I got 12 goats. I'm going to have a great Friday night. And they would go off and do all the sins they wanted to. And then Saturday, they'd come to synagogue and they bring their 12 goats. They got to kill all 12 of them. Last night was a wing dinger. You know, praise God. Whew, kill them. I got a hangover. And they'd walk home. No, God says, quit killing these poor goats. I would prefer you stop sinning. Now we have a Savior who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and there is nothing that can undo or outdo his grace and mercy that was shed for us at the cross, the blood that was shared. You know, I know that. It's inexhaustible. That doesn't mean we should try. That's the key. We need to start living for God. We need to repent. We need to turn from our sins. We need to leave it alone. And don't go back to it like a dog goes back to its vomit. It's vomit. It always has vomit. It'll always be vomit. Maybe you've forgotten what it smells like or what it tastes like, but trust me, it's the same. 
Stop going back to it. Stop going back to the shame, to the misery, to the regret. Just walk away from it. He set you free. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. Um, it's going to be a tough book, Lord, um, in a good way. We, we know you have grace and mercy and love and forbearance and long-suffering, and it's your goodness that leads us to you. The fact that you are not laying the hammer down, that you're calling to us and asking us, encouraging us, commanding us to come to you, to follow you, to stay close to you, to leave all of our sin behind. That shows us how great a God you are, how beautiful you are, how much you love us. Lord, these things are destroying us. We admit that tonight. We know that the sins that we commit against you are separating us from you. They make us feel distant. They fill us with shame and regret. And Lord, we want to confess those to you right now in our own hearts. We lift them up to you. All the sins, God, we repent. We turn from them tonight. Help us to walk worthy of that calling of being a son or daughter of yours. We want to walk as good ambassadors for you. We want to be those living epistles that Paul said where people can read our life from cover to cover and say, that is a different religion because it's changed that person from the inside out, that they might come to you and know the person of Jesus Christ, the filling of your spirit, what it means to be born again. That It's not a self-help program. It's not something we try. It's something that you do in us. You change us from the inside out. That They can have that too. That is good news. That is good news. So bless these folks as they go tonight. Help us to walk in that newness of life, Lord. Their eyes on you in holiness, being doers of the word, being fresh, being a light, being salt to this world that they might know that there is hope for them. They don't have to live in sin. They don't have to wallow in their pain and their suffering that they cause a lot of times on their own. Help them to know they can be set free from all this. Help us to walk, to show that there is freedom in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Um, Otherwise, have a good rest of the night.